talking with Jeff Lewis and Mark Livernoy with Epic Trust Financial Group, LLC in Richland, Washington. Epic Trust is a full-service financial firm offering financial services for both individuals and businesses in the Tri-City, Washington area and a little bit beyond. Now, last week we talked a little bit about shadow indexing and had some really interesting conversations about different types of investments. And here locally in the Tri-Cities, just in the past week or so, a couple of weeks, a business with some pretty substantial local roots went public. And I saw a lot of folks, you know, kind of chattering about it on social media. And so I thought it'd be interesting to maybe talk a little bit about what does it take for a company to do an initial public offering to go public? And and what are some of the benefits to doing that? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think I'll, I'll speak specifically to Dutch Brothers because that's one that we, we actually were talking about um, before the last episode. A company will go private, which Dutch Brothers was before they went public. They are looking to raise money. Basically, that's the reason. One of the other reasons is to have um, the closely held owners of the stock or of the company to diversify their personal holdings and raise money just personally. If you think if, if you're one of the big uh, holders privately of Dutch Brothers, your entire financial life is inside of Dutch Brothers, right? So that's another reason why a company might go, um, might go public. A third reason would be for expansion. This is one of the big reasons why Dutch Brothers went public, because they want to go to the East Coast. And if you think of what the company wants to do and how they would finance it, like a lot of companies, you could finance it with debt, right? Which they, they have also some debt. But a lot of it is say, hey, we know that people like Dutch Brothers, the company. Why don't we sell some stock to the public and raise money that way to either back some of our uh, expansion plans or let the owners, you know, get rid of some of their stock. Also, one of the reasons why this would happen is early investors, and I'm not talking about individuals, investment banks on Wall Street or even in California or here in Washington State, they have... Uh, identify Dutch Brothers as a very profitable company or with a lot of potential. So what they will do, and if you know the story of Facebook, Facebook did the same thing. They will raise money privately to help the company that they're backing raise money again to expand, uh, bring on other shareholders, you know, uh, do all kinds of corporate things. And then really what happens, that, and this really did happen to Facebook, at a certain point, the Securities Exchange Commission says, hey, you know what, you got too many shareholders, you need to go public. So at least in the case of Facebook, Facebook was forced to go public. I don't know if Dutch Brothers is the same way. But those are really the top reasons why companies will go public. And the IPO process is so, these companies do a lot of due diligence. The companies that are borrowing, that are lending to Dutch Brothers, Dutch Brothers has to go through a lot of due diligence. Um, and we'll talk about other ways that companies can go IPO, but it's very expensive. It's very, very expensive for a company to go public. Yeah, you're talking about audited financial statements with really high-end uh, CPA firms like KPMG and others like that uh, that cost tens of thousands of dollars to go audit these company books usually. That's just the starting of the process. Then you've got the legal side of it that is required to write up all the offering documents and everything else that has to be filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission and FINRA and then your blue sky uh, rule around 
uh, registering your stock or your offering in all 50 states. And then you've got all kinds of fees to pay to each state to be able to list your stock in all those states. And then just register your stock with the stock exchange. Um, there's all kinds of fees and expenses that goes into going public. And so usually small companies don't end up doing that or local companies don't end up doing it just purely because of the expense of doing so. Even though I'm sure there's plenty of businesses out there that have a few million dollars uh, in revenue or maybe a couple of $10 million in revenue and would love to go public to be able to raise money to operate their businesses or expand their businesses rather than having to go get a loan from a bank and they just aren't able to do that or it doesn't make financial sense to do that because of the, the legal and financial cost of, of doing that. And then reporting to all of those uh, entities over the next every, I mean, every quarter you have to report uh, your financial statements and everything else about what's going on in your company to the public because now you have public shareholders that you have a duty to keep informed. I think, uh, Jennifer, you, 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 you said... Um, why do companies go public? And I pulled up a, a headline. And um, here's the headline on Dutch Brothers. Uh, and I can't see the date on it. Uh, 917. Uh, Dutch Brothers, proceeds from initial public offering were approximately $556.8 million before deducting underwriting discounts and other fees. So why did they do it? Because <laughs> they wanted 500 million bucks. <laughs> well, they didn't it. net 500 million. But uh, yeah, they exactly. didn't net. You're right. They didn't. And oftentimes it's going to run anywhere from 15% or more in, uh, in expensive cases uh, of your total raise just to, to get your money raised. And so some of that is going to, or some of the money, like Mark mentioned, is going to go to the owners as they cash out some of their initial value that they have in the company that they've created. Uh, but oftentimes, and most of the time, uh, companies are going public not just to have a big paycheck for their initial owners, but to get cash to grow and expand their business. Because as a public company, if you're going to own them, and we can transition into the next topic of why and how should you think about owning an IPO or a new public company, if you're going to own a public company at all or ever buy somebody's stock, don't ever buy it if you don't think they have growth potential, right? Because you're betting on the fact that they're going to be more valuable in the future than they are today. And so uh, when these companies go public and they raise a bunch of money, most of that money oftentimes is going to go to expansion for that company uh, and issuing new shares uh, to the new shareholders that come on and, and give them capital. Part of the question is part of that decision tree. Should you even buy an IPO? Could you even buy the IPO, right? Do you, I understand if, if someone walks in and says, hey, I really like this company and I understand it's, you know, yeah, it's, I it's love a Dutch coffee. It's just great. Yeah, that's I want to cool. own some of it. But here's the thing. And I'm looking at various news items uh, from the day that it uh, uh, came public. Uh, Dutch Brothers opens 41% above IPO price. So before any of us had a chance to buy it, it was already up 41%. Now, that's just the nature of the, that's the, nature of the beast. Um, it opened at 32.50. The IPO was 23 bucks. And we probably need to talk about the process. And part of that process is through all the brokerage houses that are really the ones who are bringing the, the money to the table through their clients. We live in a capitalist society, right? You got a lot of money. You, you're, a, you're a client over at you know, XYZ brokerage firm. You're probably going to have a chance to buy 100 shares. And this is just supply and demand, right? 
when an IPO goes public and it, it pops 40 some percent, you kind of think, well, uh, maybe they left some money on the table, right? Because that first, that first trade, which is at 41 bucks, maybe that first trade should have been at 50. Maybe when the underwriters went to the market per se and set the price at 23, well, maybe they should have priced it at 50. Both Jeff and I were talking about before we started is like, it, there's one thing about IPOs and I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but, and we both, both been in this situation. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, you, I've got a way that you can get on an IPO, you should first think about, wait a minute, why am I being asked to do the IPO, right? Because it's probably not that attractive because they're looking for, for people to soak up the supply that's not being taken up by the big boys. Mm-hmm. That doesn't always happen. We talked about a couple of situations. Um, I was in, involved in MGM when they went public, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. But typically, um, it's a good sign if there's more demand for something than there is a supply. Name it, lumber, right? Anything like that. If there's more demand than the supply, that's not a bad thing. Now, Especially when you're talking about stocks. Right. That means the stock price is going up. Well, and then and this invariably happens also. Um, Dutch Brothers went down 10%, 5%, you know, and that's not saying don't buy it, but just... Maybe buying on the IPO is not the best thing to do. Maybe you should wait a couple of days. But, you know, we're all emotional, right? It's going up 40%. It's going to the moon. I better get some before it's too late. Right. We have that fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's a real issue. Uh, but, but specifically thinking about how should we think about buying stocks? The, the mentality of buying a, a new company is different than buying a company that's been around for a while. Because a company that's been around for a while is a public company like Apple or Amazon or Google or anyone that you could name that's been around for more than a few years. They've got at least some kind of track record, right? You can go back and look at earnings reports. You can see how they're growing their revenues or growing their profit margins. And they have something you can look at and say, these guys are going somewhere or they're not going somewhere. And you can make an educated decision with that. With an IPO, you don't really get much financial data on that company for two or three quarters because it typically takes that long for them to figure out the reporting process. Mm -hmm. Not to say that they don't have it figured out, but actually getting good numbers reported is a meaningful challenge for new public companies because most of them aren't used to giving quarterly reports that are always looking positive Mm -hmm. and always looking better than the last quarter, which is what investors ultimately want to see. They just want to see you growing all the time and have a straight shot to the moon. And that's not how life typically works. And so specifically the two companies we're looking at, like uh, we talked a lot about Dutch Brothers. Traeger Grills is another one that went public earlier this year in uh, in late July, and it was in the same boat. It shot straight to the moon from, let's see what their price was when they opened. They opened right about $22 a share, and they got up to $31 a share within about five or six trading days. And that was their peak. And since then, they've dropped all the way back down to losing a little bit of money. And at this point, they're up just shy after a great three or four days of trading mm-hmm. or, or returns in the S&P 500 and the major indexes. They're finally back to a point where they're just up 5% from their IPO price. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't sound terribly exciting. It's incredibly volatile. And when you get in on an IPO or you get in on buying a new company, you've got to realize that you could be facing way more volatility, like 40 or 50% swings in a few days or month. 
uh, at a time before uh, you're going to see some of this stuff settle down. And that could last for multiple quarters it before could, it settles down. Yeah, it could be a year, two years, three years. I mean, we always remember the, the IPOs that were positive, and certainly Dutch Brothers is that right now. Mm-hmm. The process of, of, of an IPO, and if you go through the paperwork that if you do your due diligence on these companies, there'll be something that's called a lockup period. And what that means is that insiders, um, you know, the, the investment bankers, uh, the banks, and the people who are high up in the company who own stock, um, after an IPO, they are precluded from selling individual shares for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. And that's called a lockup period. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to buy a company like Dutch Brothers, and I'm not saying you shouldn't or should, but you should be aware of that there's a lockup period, that there's a certain amount of, of stock that will come back to the public on a certain day or within a certain day, usually 90 days, uh, 180 days. And this, is, this happens throughout the life of all companies, right? If you own Google, you know, Sergey Brin and those guys are always selling stock. It you know, could be for a bad reason, could be for a good reason, but it happens. And if you're getting into an IPO, um, doing your due diligence to know that, like in Dutch Brothers' uh, case, I think, there's a lockup in March. So March of next year, there's going to be a lot of stock that's going to be offered to the public. Hmm. And if they're smart, they'll do it over several days. They're not just going to throw it all out there in one day with well, one big trade. And the nice thing, I'll say the nice thing about public companies and the way, they're, the way they have to conform to SEC rules is they have to file with the SEC that they are going to sell X amount of shares by this date. And usually it's, you know, for corporate purposes or for liquidity purposes. But this is part of the IPO process and ongoing concern that these companies are required by the SEC to do this. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the way the, this is the way it's played. That's the way the game is. And if you're going to buy any any IPO, you should have an idea when the first lockup period is going to be done. And then the other thing is, is uh, when, like, for example, Dutch Brothers, before they went public, there's something called a quiet period. You might want to talk to someone or, or find out more about the stock or what's going on with the company. By SEC rules, they can't say a darn thing for a certain amount of days before the IPO. Quiet period. Can't say a word. Um, and you should know that. You know, you might say, oh, there's, how come I can't? I've done a Google search and I, I can't find anything about it. That's that's the that's for they a reason. They can't release any information right. about it. Yeah, right? that's for a reason. And it's really, if you think about it, it's for investor protection, right? Imagine Dutch Brothers came out and said something two days before the IPO. Wow, well, is it good? Is it bad? Are they trying to do this? Are they trying to do that? Mm-hmm. So I know I know a lot of individual investors have this opinion, you know, that it's the game is stacked against them, and I totally understand the sentiment. But a lot of these rules were established after the 1930s because of what happened during, you know, the 1929 crash and, and before and the manipulation of the markets that were going on at that time. You know, I look at Dutch Brothers and you talk about whether or not they have growth potential, you know, investment potential. And you look here in the Pacific Northwest, you can't go a couple blocks without finding a drive through coffee spot, Right. I don't know how it is in Michigan, but I've lived in the South. I've lived in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. You can't find a coffee shop, a drive through coffee shop in any of those states unless Outside it's McDonald's. A, yeah, McDonald's or Starbucks. Or- mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting to, to see folks here, like you had, you had mentioned sort of that emotional 
purchase. Right. Oh, I like Dutch Brothers, so so I'm gonna you know throw my twenty five bucks at a couple shares. But you know, digging in and looking at the you know does it have growth potential? And I think if people are isolated to this area, they might go, well, you know, I mean, they're building saturated. a new one over in Kennewick. Yeah. The yeah, the market is saturated, right. and that's true here in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, but not necessarily in lots of other parts of the country. Right. One of the big um, arguments against Starbucks and when they were going, you know, they're expanding across the country, um, local shops would say, we don't want Starbucks in here because they're going to drive out the local person. Um, as someone who did research on this, that's not the case. When Starbucks came into a town, it actually raised awareness for uh, drive-through and uh, fast coffee delivery. And, and if you think about it, if you like coffee at all, right? McDonald's, are you serious, right? Right. <laughs> I'm just me, okay? <laughs> but through research, we're able to show that Starbucks actually, yes, they took a certain share of the marketplace, but the pie grew. There was more, there was more awareness in the marketplace of going and, and doing a drive-through for coffee. You know, 10 years, 15, 20 years ago, you wouldn't do it. We're doing it now. You know, we can have all these kind of conversations about good or bad. But in... And that's the the coffee market is still growing, still. And I know the Starbucks and so forth. You know, they they started out here, but you you go to Chicago, you go to New York, and uh, I you know years and years ago, uh, my wife and I took a quick vacation to Chicago, and at the time you walked down the street and there was a Starbucks like every quarter mile on one side of the you know going down Michigan Avenue, Miracle Mile. And you take, go off to a side, and there's another Starbucks. And there are people standing in line. <laughs> so, you know, people are willing to pay. My dad always is bewildered at, at what time of day there are lengthy, lengthy lines at Starbucks and Dutch Brothers and Roasters and, you know, the different places. But like you said, that pie is growing people. It's, you know, it's the trendy hip-hop happening thing still. Still. Yeah. And that's where, from an investment perspective, mm -hmm. that's the kind of stuff you want to be able to see and you want to be able to point to. Whether you're looking at a semiconductor company or a computer or phone company or you're talking about coffee, we want to be able to see future growth potential as an investor. Or you want to be able to know and expect to see future growth potential out of the company you're investing in. And if that's how you feel, if that's what you're seeing, or those are the research or that's the type of research you're able to find and you expect that there is positive outlook, that's when you can say, yeah, I'd like to buy this new company that just became public. But guess what? They're still going to be volatile. There's going to be all kinds of reasons that people are, are selling or buying that have nothing to do with the actual performance of the company. Just like Mark was talking about earlier, you're going to have people that want to cash out their shares and they're in a lockup period. Well, that could put millions of shares on the market that have nothing to do with what is going on in the company right now. It just might mean that those share owners or, or shareholders want to sell their shares so they can get cash uh, and do something else with it. And so uh, that's that's what it really boils down to for a lot of folks. And you've got to know that those kind of things are coming and that you just got to hold on through it. And and like we said last week, if you're going to own individual companies and you like the prospective outlook for that company, buy it and then don't look at it for three years uh, or longer or shorter, whatever it is. But don't look at it for a while uh, and you will be presently surprised. I think if you have enough of those in your portfolio, some of them may not turn out well. But most of them will probably be fine. And I think one of the one of the many cool things about being in this business, and, and I've had this happen here, 
is I'll have clients either email me or call me up and say, hey, uh, what do you think about, uh, you know, ABC company? You know, uh, I think we should probably put it in my portfolio. And I'll say, you know, that's probably a, you know, a, a good, let me do some research on that. And I'll, I'll do a deep dive and say, yeah, or no, or it's up to you. Um, but I think individuals have some advantage in this marketplace because wherever you work or whatever you do for a living, you pretty much know that industry probably better than we do because you're in that industry every day, right? So you might have some insights as to, you said your brother's in, uh, in medical, medical devices, devices yeah. right? He, I mean, he lives and breathes medical devices, right? And he knows uh, just by working whether or not this company is doing better than this or this company's not doing very well. And that individual investor will have insight that people like us, we don't have. And it's very, I think it's a cool thing. I, I really do. I think it's a cool thing when a client calls me up and says, hey, what do you think about this? And I've had that happen probably five times, six times already that I've been here. Since December. Since, since December. People calling me up and say, what do you think about this? Yeah, super cool. Uh, one of the other, I guess, aspects of that is um, there is a fine line between knowing some information about how your industry is working and who the players are and having inside information about a company that you work for. And uh, one will get you in jail. The other <laughs> one is just good uh, research it's and good public research. information. Right. <laughs> so. Usually, usually the yeah, you, you, we're not having a CFO of a company call up and say, hey, what do you think of this? Yeah, what do you think of my company doing this? <laughs> yeah. I'd like you to buy a few shares of XYZ. Well, but I think it's important to, to think about the aspect, too, that for most most of us, for most of us who are working 40 hours a week and raising families and taking care of the yard and taking the dog for walks, we don't have time to do that investigation, to do that research. And that's why we rely on you guys to, to know and to live and to breathe these numbers. You know, I can look at this, the monitor that's up with the, you know, graphs and the hash marks and, and that is foreign to me. I have no idea what that means, except that there's lots of pretty colors. <laughs> but, you know, you can interpret that where I can't. You know, as somebody who does not necessarily like numbers, but I like having big numbers in my you know, <laughs> rollover, <laughs> my IRA, we as the layman really rely on the financial advisor to be able to provide that insight and direction and, and yes, I can come to you and I can say, hey, what do you think of buying Dutch? And you can be like, yeah, Jen, no. <laughs> yeah, or you could say, yeah, I like it. Right. Yeah, uh, Just I, don't look at it for a while. <laughs> I, I, think, I think it's a cool part about our business and how we run our business. You talk with a lot of other managers and they, they talk the talk but not, might not walk the walk. Um, if I'm sitting now with a client, I want to know what they're thinking. And if they have questions about why this, why that, or why don't I own this versus that? Or, hey, I was talking with someone and we have, we actually have a conversation, you know. Now, Jeff will tell you, then I start geeking out, right? I mean, it's, talking about all this <laughs> it's stuff. true. Yeah, but we, we manage their account. We manage their, their money, but we're also partners in their life, right? Because this is a journey together. And when someone's sitting down with me and wanting to know what's going I want them to know what's going on. I want them to ask questions about, you know, hey, what do you think about Ford Motor Company, just for example, right? Or what do you think about General Electric? Or what do you think about Google? Or can we buy some of this, right? Because some, I believe um, getting to know the clients at a, at a deeper level 
And also, and I do this with, in client meetings, I think out loud. And I tell a client I think out loud so you can listen to what is in my head when I'm talking about these investments or what's going on with the market. And I, I preface my remarks with a client. Okay, this, I'm just letting you know this is what I'm thinking while we're talking. What's going on up here? You know, and I think that that we bring that to the table that not a lot of folks in this business do, because this business is really driven by a lot of people who like numbers and all that kind of stuff. But everybody can do numbers. I got a computer on my right in front of me. It got all these numbers in front of me. I think the beauty or what we bring is to how do you interpret those numbers to someone's life? Right. We're kind of interpreters if you will, right? This, this is numbers talking, right? Or machine learning. And we're just regurgitating that in a way that a client can under, understand. And that's what we're here for. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's way more to it than just what do the numbers say, mm-hmm. but what does your life actually need? And, and how does the plan need to look? And how are we going to spend money into retirement? And what, how much money can you afford to spend into retirement based on uh, what you've got and what you've been putting away? And what do we need to do differently between now and then? We haven't even started talking about taxes uh, on the business side, especially taxes and the employee benefits and everything else that goes into making good decisions. Those important decisions and those topics are uh, as important as the investing that we do for folks. And so uh, that wasn't meant to be a, a big advertisement for, <laughs> hey, why you should come work with us. But right. uh, but if you've got some issues and you got some things you want to work through, you've got questions about, you know, your financial situation that, you um, you'd like to get a second opinion on or you'd like to just get an opinion on from a professional rather than just from you and your spouse and your buddies at work or or your uh, ladies that you go to lunch with um you know whichever category you're in or situation you're in we'd we'd love to help you out and if you feel embarrassed about where you are don't worry about that you can leave your embarrassment outside we're not going to give you a hard time over anything we just want to help you and uh and some of this stuff we we can geek out over you know how investing works and you know ipos and how to value a company or when should you buy them or how long you should hold them. And all those things are fun for us to talk about. And we hope you're enjoying it too. Um, But at the end of the day, it really matters far more what you have control of because we don't have control of the stock market. I can't say that I love a company and it just is automatically going to go up because I bought them. In fact, most people's experience, they feel like I buy a company and it's going to go down because I put money to work or I put money with an investment guy and it just lost money right away. Uh, and, and people feel that way, but we don't want you to feel that way. We want you to be able to uh, have confidence in where you're going and what you're doing with your money. And we want you to be able to worry about the things that you actually have control over, like how much you're spending, how much you're saving, whether or not you're investing aggressively or not, how we're managing your tax bill, what are you doing to help pay for the kid's college or the grandkid's college? And should you be doing that financially in your situation? Can you afford to do that? Uh, What should you be doing with your mortgage? Is it the right mortgage for you to have? All kinds of other stuff that we need to cover in the client relationship, the client advisor process as we go through giving uh, and delivering good advice so you can get where you wanna go. Those are things that we love doing. And that's part of the partnership that you get when you come and work with Epic uh, on all things financial, not just the investments. It's the investments, the insurance, the taxes, the financial planning, the tax planning, the life planning, your estate planning, all that other stuff that we need to cover for you to have your financial craft together. That's what we want to help you do. 
And we think we do it better than everybody else in town. Not to mention most everybody else in town can't do everything that we do just because they don't have the professionals in their office. And that was one of the things that we got together uh, for last year when we merged our company with a tax firm and an insurance agency. And we brought other professionals to the table so that our clients could benefit from having just one place to go to get their financial crap taken care of. And we love doing it. It's a lot of fun. We're actually kind of passionate about it. Can tell, I can tell. Oh, I just let me <laughs> preach on. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I, I think one of the and you know the things that we do, and and I I did this this afternoon with a with a client is uh, cash flow uh, management. You know, someone who's ready to retire and they've got a, a car loan and they've got a mortgage and they got some money sitting in the credit union not earning anything, and uh, this person's going to probably retire by the end of the year. So we literally had. Um, this uh, client fill out a cash flow Excel spreadsheet and basically it's an Excel spreadsheet and he handed it over to me and we talked an hour just on that, just on that, all the things that, you know, um, his wife gets her hair done and, you know, pedicures and all this, you know, and, uh, you name it, right. They've got a car payment. They have Chris, we have a line Christmas gifts, right? We, we spent an hour. It had nothing to do with investments. It all had some, it would, and that was how does all this stuff translate into real life stuff, right? All the computer stuff, how does that relate to them? And, and to them specifically, because you can Google from here to kingdom come, what are good investments or how should I get insurance or should I invest in this or should I invest in that or how do I create a retirement plan? But to have a professional sit down with you and customize a plan based on your specific circumstances is really, it can be life-changing. Yeah, and I find that um, when, when we get that deep into the weeds, I call it, um, there are always more questions than answers. Because mm -hmm. one, one question brings out... The next uh, question. Right. You've got an answer, then it's like... And, and just the, the interaction between the husband and wife and myself, and we're going line by line through their their estimated budget, you know, and they're going to go back and they're going to talk about it, which is the way it should happen. You know, that's the, I would say, the personal side that we do. It's, it's more of the, the blocking and tackling, if it were, um, rather than, like you said, Jeff, all the investment stuff. We geek out on the investment stuff. But what's really important to clients is this other stuff that we're talking about. Yeah. How much money do I have? How long is it going to last me? Uh, how am I going to put that to work? How do I actually get a paycheck in retirement? Um, you know, how do I save money on taxes? What should I do with these savings bonds that I've had for years that are now worth like $50,000 and they're just in, you know, the drawer at home, like uh, all that stuff. Those are the, those are the things that we actually have way more fun with when we work with clients than just the investments. And if you have questions about your investment and you are looking for a trusted professional to help you with that, Epic Trust Financial is there and they can help you. All you need to do to contact them is reach out and uh, you can send Mark an email, mark, M-A-R-C, at epictrust.com. You can also go to the website, epictrust.com, and get contact information there. Investments and financial planning services are offered through Epic Trust Investment Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Investments should be considered within your overall plan, risk tolerance, and financial needs. Participation involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Tax advice and accounting services are provided by Epic Tax Solutions, LLC. 
Insurance product are offered by Epic Insurance Solutions, LLC, and guarantees are subject to the claims paying ability to the issuing company and are not guarantees offered by Epic Trust Financial Group, LLC, or its affiliated companies. Epic Trust Financial Group, LLC, is not a chartered bank, trust company, or depository institution. Speakers who are not identified as members of Epic Trust are expressing their own opinion and their statements should not be considered as reflecting the views of Epic. Third-party speakers and the host are not subject to FINRA regulation regarding conflicts and disclosure, and the listener should be aware that they may have a financial interest in or other conflicts of interest with any companies discussed. Any opinions expressed herein are statements of Epic's judgment on this date and are subject to change without notice. This recording is the copyrighted property of Epic Trust. No part of this recording may be reproduced or used without written permission.